Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility, searching always for routes forward towards that more flourishing future that our hearts know is possible. The difficulty often lies in finding ways to bridge the divide between the many inspiring and invigorating ideas and actually making real change happen on the ground in a timescale that will be relevant enough to be useful. In that regard, Dark Matter Labs is really one of the leading exponents both of the theory and the practice, and their work is a continual wellspring of inspiration and hope for me. And it's a delight to return regularly to catch the latest of what they're imagining and bringing into being. We spoke to Indy Joe Harback in episode number 205, and before that, we spoke to Emily Harris back in episode 176. I have put links to both of these in the show notes, because this week, Emily is back with us again, which definitely qualifies as being a friend of the podcast. Emily's a chartered accountant who trained with Deloitte in London and was a manager in their big ticket restructuring team during the 2008 financial crisis. So she definitely knows what life is like on one side of the divide between business as usual and regenerative change. She also holds an MA in regenerative economics with a distinction from Schumacher College. And now she's part of the new money team at Dark Matter Labs, focused on challenging the imagined order of our financial and economic systems, exploring how we actually could achieve a transition to a regenerative economy. And ahead of today's podcast, Emily sent me a couple of white papers on what DML are calling life ennobling economics, LEE, what it looks like, how it might work, how it could challenge the existing narratives in areas as diverse as governance and property rights and labour and capital and technology and care, and how we actually really integrate into the web of life. And as I say, at the top of the conversation you're about to hear, these are without question amongst the most interesting concepts I have ever read. And I spend my entire life exploring this field. To prove this, because I do sometimes enthuse about other things, I would like to read you the opening paragraph of the concept paper, which says, Instead of focusing on labour, property, individual or democratic rights, this vision seeks to unfurl the full potential of a growing planetary consciousness. It's an expression of practical realism embedded in a deep respect for all manifestations of life, past, present, human, more than human, the sacred, and the machine. This economy seeks to move beyond the everyday codes of property, labour, capital and private contracts and break free from the constrictive dance of socio-political isms. It offers an unbounded understanding of agency, inviting the full range of adjacent possibilities, thus refuting the exploitation of the many for the benefit of the few. 
And then a few paragraphs down it says, At its core, this is a provocation of the heart, an invitation to cultivate lives of profound collaboration, dignity, psychological and physical freedom. It's a framework meshed in human embodied experience that critically includes machine and non-human systems, integrating them into the same expansive beyond paradigm of interbecoming. And if that's not what this podcast is for, I don't know what is. The two papers are in the show notes and they are absolutely, totally worth reading. In the meantime, this conversation moved even beyond these into whole new areas that, yet again with DML, breached the boundaries of my thinking in a good way. A really good way. So people of the podcast, please welcome... Emily Harris of Dark Matter Labs. Emily, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. It is a joy to be speaking to you again. How are you and where are you this beautiful sunny morning? Thanks, Manda. It's really lovely to see you. And um, thank you for inviting me back as well. I'm very um, honoured and flattered. Um, so uh, I'm at home on the west coast of Scotland in my finally refurbished old farmhouse um which is very exciting yeah so I'm here it's it's I don't know it's a little bit sunny it's very stormy but um yeah so I'm well thank you you're yes it's February it's meant to be stormy we have to we have to hold on to that and is this an an old black house because you're in crofting land is it a one of the very old very low with super thick walls it certainly is. It um, honestly looks like a hobbit house and um, like we restored it with tree trunks still kind of coming through it. So yeah, it's um, wow. there's not a single straight edge in the entire house and um, I love it. It feels... <laughs> I am yeah. in love. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I will bring a tent and come visit you sometime. You're very welcome. We have a sleeping loft, Manda. You don't have to bring a tent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's a date then. We'll get to Scotland. We will get to Scotland. Faith's going to spend a month in Shetland, and I'm hoping that by the time she's done that, we're going to be, okay, let's move to Scotland. That would be good. Leaving all that aside, <laughs> back to the podcast. So there is so much going on with with everything you're doing at Dark Matter Labs. The life ennobling economics papers are quite genuinely very near the top, if not at the top, of the single most inspiring documents I have read in the whole time of doing this podcast. And it's really hard to know exactly where to dive into these. So I thought I'd cop out and just ask you, what is most alive for you at the moment? And let's go for there. Okay, let's go with that. I suppose the first thing is to give you, a, or your listeners, a very quick overview of what on earth life ennobling economics is, um, which I will do. And I know that you had Indy on the podcast and I think, well, he was speaking um, about a lot of the philosophies that underpin this. Um, but I'm also aware that sometimes it's quite hard for people to perhaps like unpack and really visualise some of the things that he's saying. Um, and we even have that within our own teams. So what I'd like to try and do is to give a summary of this life enabling economics that Indy and I have been working on with help from others. And then really, if I can, try and ground that back to work that the team is doing um, on the ground. And, um, Perfect. Yeah, I guess I think that would also be quite a good discipline for me, to be honest, because I think sometimes um, it's a little bit easier to kind of hide behind these, um, I guess, almost mysterious concepts. But actually, I um, and we haven't always been great at grounding it. And I feel 
kind of quite strongly that I would um, really like people to be able to interrogate this work and to, and to ask questions and to build on it. And to make it happen in the real world, because that's well, the key, yeah. isn't it? We can have all the grand ideas, but if we don't actually bring them into life, then then they stay in the realm of grand ideas. So let's see how we can do that. That sounds grand. Okay, so how would I say it? Like elevator pitch, and then we can um, dig into some of it. So life enabling economics, I would say that it's really a unifying vision, um, also a call to action. And for me, it's really an invitation to break free from some of these invisible hierarchies of our minds um, and to understand that our existing institutions and kind of value frameworks, I guess, are no longer fit for purpose. And then from there, I think, to find joy um, in the kind of realisation that we can, in fact, choose where we put our attention um, and therefore what happens from there. And yeah, I can see your face and I I personally love a little bit of metaphysics, um, but on a more practical level, um, life enabling economics, it's also a framework, I think, for what I would describe as like a really inclusive but continuous conversation. Perhaps if I had to summarise it, I would almost put it as a series of questions that we're hoping to engage with, both within dark matter and externally. So like above all else, I think something that I personally ask myself, you probably do as well, but like really what would a desirable future economy, like what would that actually look like, right? And then if that was to happen, what would need to shift for that to become a reality? Um, And then really importantly, I think like what does that mean in the context of our um, current social, political, economic realities? And then I think from there, the fourth question is like, what can we build or, or seed to try and test those assumptions and and that's really important they are just assumptions so I think life enabling economics is not like some blueprint where we're saying oh you know we need to shift to this economy and it will have this this and this Um, I think it's more we really want to move beyond certain paradigms and we want to invite people to explore it with us and we want to continually ask these questions go out try and test them fail you know things won't sit or they just won't like the Overton window won't be big enough and then come back and put the question again, right? So we'd have to unpick the Overton window for people who are new to the podcast, but let's just take a step back from that because this is exactly what this podcast is for, is how do we get to the flourishing future that we would be proud to leave behind and and exactly what what is the route map to get there in the understanding that if we're going to transcend paradigms, all we can do is step to the edge of our existing paradigm and then embody a value system and see what emerges. Because if we know exactly where to go, we're still in the old paradigm. So in a minute, I want you to tell us what an overturned window is and and how it could shift. But in framing these questions, we are back to ideas of emergence, ideas of interbecoming. And what I would really think you're aiming for and what I would like to get today is how do we make the first steps? What, what does have to change and what does it look and feel like and how can we as individuals, what little levers, transcending paradigms was Danella Meadows' top lever of everything. Yeah. And I'm really exploring that. You're right. This is, this is my whole personal inquiry at the moment is what does it feel like to transcend paradigms? What does it feel like to let go of the old paradigms? How scary is that? Because it's basically walking out off the edge of the cliff. Yeah in the belief that there something will materialise under our feet. And that's a really scary thing to do. And yet you guys 
are doing it and are writing it in these documents. So tell us what an Overton window is, and then let's get into the nitty gritty of what does have to change and how can we change it. Okay, I'll have a go. So the Overton window, in my understanding, is really like what's politically possible in the current moment. So we might want to do things like um, you know, rapidly reduce our carbon, but is it possible for a government to actually bring in laws that would ban air travel, right? And in the UK right now, no. So I would say that that um, Overton window is very narrow in that respect, but certain things have the power to really shift that and blow it open. Um, and that might be something like COVID, for example. So a lot of things happened in COVID that really opened that window. Um, so, you know, before that, if our government had told us to stay at home and, um, you know, only go out for one hour of exercise or a day, it wouldn't have been politically possible. So um, that's how I would describe that. So how do we how do we go about shifting Overton windows? Because I am also very aware that, yes, the Overton window shifted during COVID, but certain forces put a lot of energy, effort, time and money into narrowing it back down again as fast as they possibly could because they didn't like the fact that it had shifted from, from where it was. And if we watch our current media system, I don't want to go too far down my paranoid conspiracy theory rabbit holes, but they are very good at shaping the Everton window. They know where it is. They know where they want it to be. You know, Nigel Farage regularly is invited to pull it further to his side of weirdo populism and people who might convincingly, Roger Hallam might be considered the Nigel Farage of a different wing, get no airtime at all. So how does your thinking look at us even making the Overton window more flexible? Yeah, um, I think there are lots of different ways, obviously. But one example that I would give is that we can take a concept that maybe is just almost ridiculous to express in our current um, situation. So let me say something like a statement like self-agent technology um, can be embedded with an entangled theory of care, right? If I was to go onto the news and say that... I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> no, exactly right, but I'll get to it. So, but if I was to say something like that, you know, I just, I wouldn't get any airtime, right? But then I think that we can start to experiment with things that might demonstrate that. So I'll unpack that a bit, what I mean by that. And then um, tell you about something that we've been doing to actually make that possible and then sort of wrap it up into something that can be used in a more widespread um, context. So let me try and step that through. Um, so this is my attempt at the Overton window and technology being part of the web of life, right? OK, yes. So I think um, that technology is a part of whatever it is that we're becoming. Yes, I agree. The question is then, how do we understand that? So, like, is it some kind of neutral tool or actually is it a threat or could it be um, a pathway to embodied intelligence systems um, and networks of learning, for example? So, like, an example that I think everyone can relate to, because that sounds really quite esoteric, is your phone. So if you wanted to really interact with the web of life, you might say, turn your phone off for a number of hours a day or get rid of your phone even. Um, but then if you like really change that perspective a bit, you could think, well, your phone actually is opening you up to experiences and relationships across geographies, perspectives that yes. you don't have any access to in your local context. So it's like, oh, actually in that, in that situation, the phone is enabling um, different 
kind of interactions with the world. Yes, communities of purpose and passion that are not limited to place. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of who we are in the 21st century. Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. Right. So then where I would take that is what about if we create embodied indicators? So perhaps these indicators, um, they might combine things like spatial computing. So things like um, fitness watches, so tech um, interacting with a human. And then perhaps they can also then combine um, distributed sensors. So things that like measuring like air quality. And then maybe you could combine those with how people even feel about the indicator. And then suddenly it's like, where's the boundary in that between the technology and us? Okay, so that's the theory. Let me tell you our attempt at that, right? So just to try and, I'm I'm kind of trying to give as many practical examples as I can. So we've got this um, initiative and it's called the Cornerstone Indicators. And we've tried to do exactly that. So they are literally um, measures where we combine multiple data points um, from all these different sources And then we wrap them up into one single intuitively understandable indicator. And also they're co-designed with the communities. So like, I'll give you an example of one. Please do. So it's actually being used now live in the Swedish city of Vesteros. And they designed it themselves. And the indicator is the number of people who actively enjoy not owning a car. So it's not just the fact that they don't have a car. It's the fact that they enjoy not doing so, right? So, like, as a narrative, like, we might say, um, what does that mean? So people feel safe to mix or perhaps they're confident in their public transport services. They can, you know, they're physically fit and they can use active transport. And maybe they feel something like empowered to act on the climate emergency. So it has all of those things. But then behind it, we have loads of um, dimensions and data points that are contributing to that indicator as well. So you might have things like, subjective measures of of trust or perhaps those kind of more distributed sensors um, like air quality um, and maybe like the reliability of the um, transport itself could be coming in via tech sensors. So I think like it's super interesting and there you've got so many things going on that are an interaction between technology, our lived experience and a theory of care. Um, and I can give you more detail about that and like how they're being used, but please come in. Yes, yes, because it feels to me we could we could spend the entire podcast just unpicking this. Yeah. So I want to know how it arose. I want to know how it's been taken. I want to know how to spell the name of the Swedish city, but we can sort that out at the end. Okay, let's go take a step back. Where I come from is we are where we are. We are an integral part of the web of life. We have got to where we are and... Either the web of life has made a terrible mistake, and I am well aware there are a lot of people who think that, Mm. and I don't think it's prone to making mistakes, and therefore we have the technological capacity that we have. It is our job to work out how to use it in a way that that supports the thriving of life in all its forms on the planet. And exactly as we said, technology allows us to create our communities of passion and a purpose at a distance from our communities of place, and it allows us to do so much more. I always come back to the LLM, the guy who's creating the large land model, which I just think is genius. And there are some very bright young people that you and I both know who are right at the leading edge of this. My fear is always that technological development at the moment seems to be being pushed by the profit motive, by extraction, by commodification of our life's energy and the life of the planet. And 
learning to trust that the gathering of my data is not going to end up with me being on a prison ship floating out somewhere in the Atlantic because Mm -hmm. the people who own the data have decided that I don't fit with their model of how they want people to be is my terror point. So that was where that was my big yes but that was arising and then you said let's let's find quantification of the number of people that enjoy not having a car and suddenly i'm all sweet and fluffy and marshmallowy and kittens yeah. and baskets again because that sounds like a really good thing and also very hard for anyone except car manufacturers and fossil fuel lobby to get upset about i imagine they get right. quite upset about it but that's a whole separate thing because i did listen to someone on Nate Higgins the other day who was clearly super bright really interested in biophysical limits and he said for goodness sake stop worrying about electric cars we just need to stop everybody having personal transport and i thought i live in the middle of nowhere if i stop having personal transport we're back to i am walking once a month probably to the local town yeah. and that's not going to be fun and and i don't want to do that and how do we get around that in the world that we need to get to. And you're right, the Overton window, you know, it might be quite hard for any existing government to ban air flight and still stay in power for more than a week. But if you ban personal transport, you're gone by tomorrow, mate. So, so exactly that. Yeah, no, totally. The stacking up of questions is, this is a really interesting use of technology. Whose idea was it? Why is it there? What are you doing with it? And how do the people who are both engaged with it and who are not engaged with it, feel about it, and where is it going? And and if we end up taking the whole podcast on this, that's fine. You you can come back and we'll talk about something else. But let's let's just see what's possible because this feels really. This is actually happening just now. Yeah, yeah, it's happening in in three countries. So I can give you a bit of detail um, in each of them. So like the original idea we co-developed with Catherine Trebek, you know, who and the lady that co-founded the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, but it was a slightly different beast at the time. So that was more about creating these kind of narratives on top of um, the indicators. And then we've taken it in a few different directions, but certainly the idea was developed with her. And what I would say, just to pick up on something that you were saying about all that almost fear um, of tech kind of becoming like, yeah, almost like we're then creating a monster, right? Or, Or well, AI might create it for us, but we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I totally agree with that. And that's why I think it's really powerful that these indicators include things like how people feel about them, because it's very difficult to game. Um, So one of the ways that they're being used, and I I really enjoy this, is almost like as buffer metrics. So like, for example, um, I'm sure you've heard of like outcomes-based financing or or like results-based financing. So the World Bank, very keen on this. Um, So as you reduce carbon, you get to certain milestones, you get some money. Right. Yeah, but then you end up gaming the milestones to get the money. Of course, but even even if it's unintentionally, right? So you're going to probably erode some of those unseen, unnoticed stocks and flows of value in pursuit of the defined one, which is the carbon. Yeah, so like someone, again, to give an example, someone in their city, they might decide, let's reduce um, bus services or, or like put in more cycle lanes because you know that's going to hit this milestone. But then on the back of that, some of the older people become, you know, really isolated and mental health um, declines and, you know, or there's some, I don't know, like old car park that um, is like, you know, wasteland or something and you decide to fill it with solar panels, but you didn't realise that actually it was really important for biodiversity. So where we are starting to see these indicators being taken up, and I think this is going to happen in Canada, is where a community goes into one of these schemes. So like maybe it is agreeing to, um, or they want to set up a community energy scheme 
um, but they want to use these indicators of whether the scheme is successful um, because it almost, so yes, it, it prevents intentional gaming, but it also starts to um, form this buffer of the sort of known unknowns um, being eroded. Yeah. And when you say they're using this technology, this is AI generated? Is Are we getting to AGI with this? I don't think that we are getting there yet um, in our Canadian context. Yeah. So we, so as I said, we started in Sweden and they've got five active indicators. Um, so just like, so there's things, it's really interesting. There's things like... Um, sure is. The number of people that feel um, at peace on a Sunday night or the number of people that have a plan, dream or goal more than one year into the future. And one thing that I guess I do want to add to that is like the strategic designer that worked with me on the project, a colleague called Vlad, and he illustrated them in the most incredible way. And I think sometimes like it's that those designs that really gave the heart to the project. And I think otherwise it would have just really been a good idea and I'm not sure that it would have been as successful and I was thinking about this because we were talking about Canada so last week we did a workshop in Canada well it was actually sorry it was online but the the audience was in Canada and um, a lady got like quite emotional and she said like it was the first time that she'd ever felt warm about indicators and it's because Vlad had like illustrated these indicators as like graphic pictures really of people doing these things and she was just like oh you know it's so different so I just want to bring that in because yes there is all the tech behind it but I'm not sure that that's the only thing that I would I would focus on okay so the tech human interface yeah right but but some of the data being gathered can be quite simple so in the Swedish city we have just like in supermarkets where people can like press a button like you know did you sleep well last night stuff like that so it's not all kind of oh you know that we need really advanced technology to get these data points and some of the data points or many of them I would say like so each indicator might have like 50 or 60 data points behind it and a lot of that data is already available so one of the pushbacks that we had from the politicians in fact in, in some of these situations was like oh we don't you know we don't need any more indicators we don't need you know we're drowning in them hmm. you know we're, it's it's not helping and it's like well actually we're not adding any data points we're just right enabling people to feel agency over them right how does that happen how do people feel they've got agency besides pushing a button in the supermarket saying yes i or no because they design them they design themselves. So the other sort of half of this project is all about the participation. So we don't go in and say, oh, this would be a nice indicator for you guys. So the part where you were saying um, in your rural location, if they took away the transport, like what would you do? So I would never profess to go in and say, this is what your community healthy should look like. You know, this is well-being for your little area of Wales, because I don't know, do I? So we go in with participatory workshops and scenarios where we let will help people to play out into, say, like 2030, 2050, um, what would their community look like in this situation or that situation and how would they feel and they play out day in the life. And then we take all the data from that and then um, sort of propose back to them like what that could look like and we use statistics. and Yeah, yeah, it kind of gets slightly more complicated Um, and then we iterate with them. So the first set of indicators that we proposed in Sweden, the community didn't actually like very much. And we were a bit crestfallen, but it was really, you know, good learning. And it's their indicators. So we changed them and now they are using them. Right, 
Right, because they have ownership, because they know what they're doing, they know why they're there, and it's fun and it's exciting, and then we get to see the results. Right. Excellent. And so... Let's just stay with this as a model because this mm-hmm. is this is real world stuff. This is taking the theory and making it actually happen in the real world. How did the number of people who feel good about not having a car arise as being a question that people in the city thought was a useful one to ask? Uh, so it didn't. So they didn't come up with that question. They came up with things that were important to them, which was things like people taking the climate emergency more seriously or right. the fact that there and because it was an old industrialized city that they really wanted to improve the air quality or that they were very worried about safety um, and kind of threats from security so they didn't come up with it they came up with all the things that mattered to them right um, and we combined that with national statistics in Sweden um, and then we pulled all that together and, and looked at all the overlaps and then suggested the narrative on top of that which they then tweaked right okay that makes a lot of sense and how long has this been running and are they happy with it? Yeah, yeah, they are. So it's um, it's it's its first year of them being active um, and it certainly wasn't like always smooth. And so we did have pushback from politicians, all this kind of thing. And one of the things that we came up with well with them was that individual politicians could champion certain indicators because really it's outside of the electoral cycle if you think about it because what they were worried about is like, oh, you know, if, if it clashes with my man- mandate, for example. So, you know, if I'm pushing this indicator but actually I got in on saying that I would improve roads or transport then it's going to clash and we're saying no it's not like this is what your community is saying so it doesn't mean that you can't build the road but it does mean you'd have to add good cycle lanes so it's just helping people to see that so yeah so they're using it and then the other two so Canada but Scotland we also did it in Scotland but in that situation Manda we didn't do the indicators we were really practicing the workshops so we did a big okay. kind of, um, it wasn't such a deep dive. It was like right across Scotland. Um, and we developed like an online workshop playbook that different communities could use. And then we did that with Carnegie UK. And then we um, were the people collating all the data and then sending that back to the Scottish government. Um, and we did it as part of their consultation on the national performance um, framework. So it's kind of like different uses. And I would say that like each iteration of the project, we're just trying to, develop and learn and then hopefully towards the end of this year we'll put it all out open source um, on a website that anyone can pick up because yeah and use in their own communities for whatever that community wants it to be for exactly in the examples that we're looking at Scotland Sweden Canada are you finding a broad demographic of people engaging or does it tend to be the kind of people who would be listening to this podcast yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. I think it is broad, but that's partly because we look for um, local community partners because we we I can't possibly design and run. Well, I can put the um, background thought in, but I can't run a workshop in an indigenous community in, in you know in Canada. It would be it would be insulting, right? So we're always looking for local partners, and they have different interests. So I'd say that's where the right. diversity of audience comes in. So okay, but as long as they do, then that's good. And as long as there is a sense within the community that this isn't the kind of weird group in the corner doing the stuff on their own. I, I listened to another podcast last week of the of Compass, which in the UK is trying to create a coalition of of broadly progressive political parties. And they have now got to the point in this place in Surrey where previously the Tories owned the council and now the Compass Group owns the council and the Compass Group is made up of Greens and Lib Dems and Labour, but they're still seen as 
now they're the Compass Group. It's still an out-group until they manage somehow to create a sense of broader community within their geographic boundaries. I don't know, something's just coming up for me then, which is like, okay. we're talking about indicators, but I think it's also interesting because, so in another something else pulling out of the life enabling economics um, to do with data. And so, yes. so we, we talk quite a lot about um, kind of wanting to move to this new world of self-sovereign agents, right? Like, what does that mean? So what I just wanted to pick up on is like how numbers can actually be narratives as well. Um, just thinking about these indicators, but maybe taking it to a different context. So I think like for me, when we're talking about self-sovereign agents, um, we're really kind of talking about relationships um, and this idea that relationships are primary to the things that are related, right? So, and I think like if we take that thought and then add these kind of emergent technologies that we've just been talking about, we've got a really good shot at coming up with a new theory of value. Um, and so some, that's something that we've, again, been starting to play with. Okay, let's go deeper into this, please. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of building on the indicators, but then like, where else can we take this? Perhaps into contexts like finance, which just, you know, you, or, or like stewardship governance. Um, so uh, a recent project, and I guess I don't, I, I won't say the name of the city because it hasn't actually been published yet. It's nothing like Cloak and Dagger, but I'm not sure of sensitivities, but a major European city, um, asked us for help recently because they need to pay for serious climate adaptation and that they just can't, right? The city itself just does not have the quantum of money. So what they wanted to do is try and bringing all these different stakeholders to contribute. So, you know, it might be the banks, it might be the mortgage holders, real estate developers, the utility companies, right? So, you know, and they were like, how can we get this um, to happen? So Hmm. what, I kind of wanted to express is that for me, um, numbers can be a really powerful way of telling a story. And that might sound odd, but so I build quite a lot of financial models, or I used to. And when I sit down to do that, I normally start with a a totally blank spreadsheet, right? And um, because it's almost like, oh, what story do I want to tell with these numbers? Um, Mm. And I know like a lot of modelers don't do that. They like take parts of models and they stitch them together and then they build on top. But I don't really like to do that. I'm like, what what is it that I want to say with these numbers? Because they're doing that implicitly. It's just that they think there's only one story. And so they get the numbers to fit it. You're you're being more honest about the, I am using these data points and probably selecting these data points to say what I want to say. Yeah, but I think by doing that, it also makes me more, more aware, maybe, of the story. So this is what happened in with this city, because I was starting to try and think, oh, how, how am I going to show this? And, and then I was like, oh, this could actually be a really strong story. So what we decided to do in the end is we took a case study, a real area of the city. So it was about 0.3, a bit smaller, kilometres squared. And um, my colleague, Sophia, actually used like spatial analysis and mapping to like just draw that out so she literally could tell me how many meters squared of certain types of road or like you know how many residential buildings like whether there was a a transport hub and all of these things and then she was also looking at um, probability of certain weather events happening so she could like map out like you know this like probability of this kind of flood happening where it would get to like how many cars would get wiped out all this kind of stuff okay so we had all of this data and then like my kind of part of this was then to build on top of it and say 
you know, like what would that mean in monetary terms? Because it's the way, unfortunately. Right. But right now, that's how we can convince people. Yes. So I'll take you through it because it's interesting. So we end up with this story. So we're like, well, so first of all, what would be the direct savings to all these people that are going to be convened in this city to talk about this? So like, you know, if we do nothing, how much is it actually going to cost in terms of ruined things? Or if we spend the money doing certain adaptations? But then it gets more interesting. As you start to layer it on top, it's like, well, if we were to coordinate, for example, so utility company X coordinates with you, um, then who saves? Because actually there's a lot of disruption reduced and therefore the tourism businesses don't, you know, and so what's the money there, right? right? And then you can layer it up again and you say, well, if you put in nature-based solu- um, solutions to try and um, reduce like flooding or then actually real estate prices go up and, and depression goes down and health costs and you can start to actually put numbers against all of these things and take them through this story about why actually when we get to the end and we totally integrate the approach and we say so like oh you know the the department that's looking at housing crisis could actually benefit in the same way as the department that is um you know, maybe looking at trying to reduce carbon if we do mixed-use space, um, because then you might get intergenerational mixing, maybe social capital would go up, crime rates go down, blah, blah, blah. So, but it was really amazing because we could show them the pictures of what was happening in this case study. We could show all the floods and heat coming in, then we could put the numbers on it and show them all of the financial savings as well as all the other things going on. And then we could take that whole story. So from the, you know, at the beginning, none of these people even wanted to speak to each other. And yeah, I'll I'll let you come in and then I'll tell you where it's ended up. My question is, how much does it break their heads? Because what you are doing is taking a neoliberal extractive mindset. And in the space of the time it takes you to to tell them all of this, asking them to shift to a cooperative mindset. And I think that's absolutely, utterly amazing. But I can imagine... And maybe I'm projecting, but I can imagine the people who who are invested in the extractive mindset, mm-hmm. this hitting their belief systems. It's a bit like expecting medical doctors to take on board homeopathy. It hits it hits their belief yeah. systems so hard that their limbic system rejects everything because because they can't shift their worldview to encompass what you're offering. Yeah. Did you hit that kind of resistance, or did everybody just? No, because I I I would kind of disagree with you I'm not asking them to do that at all I'm actually showing them how they're going to save money right so that's the whole point okay we build the story but then we like put quite a fancy financial model on top of it and then show them why they're all going to be better off so it's not actually even appealing to their kind of community solidarity or higher values it's actually just because I think this has been the problem with a lot of these kind of narratives and aspirations of let's say a well-being economy is that they couldn't show people necessarily like why even under their current worldview this would be a good idea but it's not all like you say it's not quite so easy so even though they then bought into this and and like we gave them the model so they could interrogate it because I didn't want people to be like oh well you didn't take into consideration x y or z so I set it up so that all the assumptions they could look at they could change them you know they could decide that I wasn't right Right. about this probability well fine I don't mind 
Did they? Because there's a tendency to just trust something. When you've been given it, you don't want to do the work. You go, OK, it must be all right because you let me look at it. Did they go away and interrogate it a lot? Yeah, I think people... I mean, nobody's come back with any major... But that's. I think that's like the power of a good model is that it does allow people to interact with it and to, you know, feel out their own story because, you know, they might not agree with certain things, but that's fine because... We don't know how it's all going to play out, do we? But they can test them. So no, oh, this is the emergent edge. Yeah. That's the point. Okay, so then, so then, what's happening with this? Has it? Have they taken it on board? Yeah. So what we're proposing is going back a bit to what you're saying. So even though they might now see that this, you know, has financial benefits and everything, and other benefits, of course, they're not all just about money. Um, it's like, how do we meet them where they are now? Because some of them, you know, they have departmental budgets or whatever, and they can't just invest into this collaborative fund. Um, so what we've done is like split it out into a phased approach. So let's say in the first instance, everybody puts a percentage, like 5% of their budget into almost like a pay it forward fund. And then when the first set of benefits are, um, are realised, then the next stage for the coordinated benefits, they put a percentage in and then we pay it forward. So it's like um, we've essentially we've designed a phased financial instrument um, and right. what I want to say is because financial instrument people always kind of glaze over. It's one of those like, all it is, it's like, so financial instruments are like money, they're social contracts. All it is, is you get people to agree on something. And then you go to some lawyers and you get them to put like a contract on top of it. So I don't want people to be afraid of financial instruments, because I used to work with them. Oh. And it's that's all it is. Yeah, clearly. And that's, that's the value is you know what they are, and you're not afraid of them. So the rest of us can trust you to sort them and, and bring them to us in a way that we understand and aren't afraid of. I'm not saying that that's the exact financial instrument that will get used. So what we're doing is now convening all of these people into a big conference and the financial actors there, right. I'm hoping, will volunteer. So we're going to get people to come out with like proposed working groups. So I'm hoping that some of the banks will agree to like work on the technicalities of said financial instrument that might right. be slightly different to the one I'm proposing. Okay. So again, my if this were in the UK and you had... Let's pick a city out of the sky. Let's say Manchester. Manchester decided to do this. Yeah. The government would look at the fact that Manchester was somehow managing to make more money and would cut its funding proportionately so that there was no chance for Manchester to pay forward because central government would A, not like the ideology and, and B, decide that they needed to cut the funding. Do you have a reasonable assurance from the broader governance of this particular region that if they managed to to do what sounds to me quite a lot like a Preston model mm -hmm. and, and start to to generate internal money that their external funding will not simply pro rata decrease? Yeah, again, it, it's a good question. Um, because it's a whole city, it's not just um, uh, public money. So that we're also asking, so the utility companies that are doing like okay, the under, yeah, so, um, right. yeah, so the wiring or the banks or, the, or like a good example is the mortgage providers because their risk exposure is rapidly increasing. So they're actually quite keen to contribute, but they want to do it in community. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. And the insurance companies must be very happy to do of this. Of course. Right. And the okay, reinsurance companies even right. happier. So Yes. Right. Who decides how much of the money that a company makes is a result of the changes they have made? Because, again, you could get a change of CEO who goes, you know, well, I just painted everything in the office bright orange, and that's the reason we've been making this more money, and therefore we don't have to pay it into your fund. You know, capitalists will be capitalists, sadly. 
that was unkind to capitalists, but I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. How do you lock in the the paying forward continuing to pay forward and doesn't just become another way to pay our shareholders a bigger bonus? Yeah, I um, honestly, I don't know. But um, I think it will be a governance structure put on top. So we would set almost like with the cornerstone indicators, you know, we would try and set metrics on top of it that would bring in multiple different data points um, and how people were experiencing mm-hmm. their city. So it wouldn't be tied to individual right. companies for sure. Um, because okay. I agree with you. If you just said, oh, a percentage of your profits, you're right back down to the kind of gaming instinct, aren't you? So Yeah, it'd be very interesting because this is, this is social technology and to an extent this is metaphysical. I know we start with the metaphysics, but we always come back to that. It's how do people feel? And if these are big companies, it, the interesting thing is going to be, does the parent company look at what's happening and go, this is a really good idea, let's let's spread this further? Or do they just milk the cash cow and, and yeah, yeah. milk it dry, you know, become the giant vampire squid, drain it till it's little husk and walk off and do something else? Yeah, yeah. And, and the only way of knowing is, is how do the people feel and do does their sense of well-being which one assumes will have to increase the increase in that well-being ripple back up the line to the point where other people want more of it rather than just wanting the money who knows i think that's true but i mean i would think on a slightly more kind of harsh and um kind of neoliberal um like slant it will also like if if the stuff that we've modeled is correct which i think broadly it is some of these increased social values will also transpire to monetary values so these contributions into these funds these funds can pay a return so i think when i was talking about it being staged it's because there's a leap of faith to start it right so that's why we're saying a percentage at the beginning but once we can actually prove that this integrated approach is making returns suddenly that becomes an asset class of its own and you're not asking people to do it just because they want um you know a well-being society so i think it's kind of interesting it's a slightly greener city yeah 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 exactly okay all right yeah that makes sense framing it as an asset class of its own makes makes all of my toenails curl inwards but (laughs) yeah i know i know but it's you're right it is and that's you have to meet people where they are it's it's utter genius yeah so we're looking at the ways that we can really ground the ideas and and bring them to an emergent edge and what you said about cities sounds really exciting so how do we measure the number of people who really enjoy not having a car one assumes that if that's a demonstrable number we increase the number of people who want to try being happy and not having a car Unless the car manufacturers and the fossil fuel industries come in with a counter move, then then you end up with massively reduced personal transport in the city. And presumably that bounces into other ways of becoming a net zero city. And then in our in our other city, we're looking at how do we mitigate the effects of climate change and how do we do it by harnessing private capital. Overlooking all of these and a lot of my edginess around this is what happens with the governance systems when our current governance is wholly owned by the nastiest of the death cult. I am imagining that its reaction will be largely what it was during lockdown, which is we don't like we don't like what's happening. We're going to push back with all of the levers at our command, of which there are many, mainstream media, social media, 
and the governance structures. Have you ideas of how we might go about transforming governance itself? Because it seems to me that that's underlies everything. If we can change the way governance happens, if we can bring power to those with wisdom and wisdom to those with power, then we have a chance of broader change. And I'm sure Dark Matter Labs is thinking about this. So does that sound like something we could talk about? Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, and I'm sat here thinking like how to go into this because I think we're looking at it in really different ways. So perhaps I can touch on two threads. Um, so yep. I'll, I'll say them and then we can decide which one to go to first. So I think on a more like practical, really gritty, hands-on kind of um, thread, we've got our Net Zero Cities team who are literally working with 112, I think it is, um, mission cities right across Europe. Um, and they're trying to create the governance structures really to um, you know, achieve uh, carbon neutral smart cities by 2030. So that's like a really practical wow. um, example. And then right on the other end of the spectrum, um, in the kind of like way beyond, you know, the kind of um, beyond paradigm horizon, whatever you want to call it, um, we are working to try and create, I'm laughing saying it because it just sounds like kind of um, a ridiculous ambition, but we are trying to like start anyway, the first um, distributed bioregional bank using multivalent currencies. So, oh my goodness. These are two, two ends of the spectrum. Um, and when I say that distributed bank, it's not doesn't really bear any resemblance to a bank that we would understand now. And it's more like a stewardship interface. Um, so we're working on both things. So you can pick. Oh, but each of those is a podcast in its own right. Emily. <laughs> but you, you did ask. So these are two approaches to oh, governance. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I, I guess I know less about the Net Zero Cities work, but I can give you maybe um, just some ideas ab about it, if, if that's helpful. Um, and maybe you could connect me to someone on the team and we could have a whole podcast on Net Zero Cities because that's a really important thing. Yeah, definitely. Give us yeah, give us a framework so that people listening don't feel that they've just been had a teaser that's then been snatched out from under them. No, and then, exactly. And please, let's look at the bioregional bank because that's, that's the whole of how money works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let, let's do those two things because I think What's really important for me with the Net Zero Cities work is that actually, so Dark Matter, we have all these kind of, let's say, capabilities or goals that we're working on, and we might sometimes do those in quite abstract ways. Um, but then it's actually our cities team that are there on the ground testing all these things out in context, in the messy, knotty reality of trying to negotiate that across multiple stakeholders, right? I, I personally have such admiration. I'm not sure. I think I wouldn't even last a day. I sometimes feel like I should do a secondment into the city's team because, yeah, I know, I sit here with all my slightly wild ideas and they're there, like, doing it. Right. Holding the conversations, getting the pushback and trying to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. So there's, um, like, a part of it that they work on is, is something called the Climate City Contract. And it's a contract between individual cities um, and the European Commission. And really, as a process, that is a governance process. So it's like, how can you bring in all these different actors um, and, you know, convene these stakeholders and kind of, I suppose it's, um, they're trying to create, like, a collective vision of the future. Mm. And also, they're kind of holding a mirror up to the city. So, like, what haven't you thought of? Um, so, as you can imagine, this isn't always, like, very easy um, work. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, one of my colleagues, for example, who is also at Schumacher, so she called Georgia, and I would definitely recommend uh, that you speak to her. So, she's really looking at the, um, like, policy side of this. 
And um, she was saying it's so interesting because, like, she says because a lot of it is about deliverables, there's often, like, a knee-jerk kind of response back to kind of go back to business as usual. So she's, like, trying to look at, for example, having policy labs that actually embody, like, a mission um, kind of methodology rather than just, like, a project-based methodology. And tell us what that is. I don't understand the difference. So, like, if you're just going project by project, you might say, oh, well, we'll just, like, set up this many policy labs or we'll do, like, this many webinars, for example, and, and, you know, get people thinking um, maybe slightly differently, like tweaking what they've done before. Mm. Um, But if you were thinking about it as a mission, you would really be looking, like, way out into the future and then, like, maybe working with, like, I don't know, like reflexive, data-driven type policy instruments. So, And this is within DML or is this with each individual city? Because cities are going to be limited by the political time frame of the yeah. people who run them. If they get elected every four years, they can't think beyond four years. Exactly. And like I think that's one of the things um, that they're really facing, which again, I, I don't know that much detail about. But so, for example, like these um, kind of policy and regulatory like hurdles because um, bureaucratic processes are, are really hindering that. So, like one example, I heard one of the team talking about was in Galway, where um, they're just like really struggling with some of the retrofitting work that's going on in that city because the kind of policies that are there and the bureaucratic bureaucratic processes are just so complex um, that it's just like leading to all these delays and increased costs, and people are like losing their energy for it. Right. But you just talked us through an example of a city, which I'm guessing might be one of the 112, where they're bringing in private money and firms to invigorate exactly along these lines. Yeah. I'm guessing, again, we go back to story because the conversations that we have, you and I have, are predicated on us understanding that we don't have very long before we hit tipping points beyond which business as usual is not an option. Yeah. And yet the people who are deeply involved in local and national governance seem to think at some point, they think in the next time frame of their political scale, but they're also thinking 50, 100 years ahead where everything is skating along exactly as it is now and there have been minor tweaks to the political trajectory depending on which way they want it to go. And it leaves me gobsmacked, actually, that they they don't seem to get the urgency of this. No, I, I think that's true. How do you do that? Yeah, how do you bring that into the conversations? without freaking people out, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's maybe where the big opportunity is with this city's work because it involves so many different stakeholders. So you might get the old guards who are really resistant, but then you're going to have people from perhaps like from innovative, even tech companies who are involved as well because the whole point is it brings in all the different actors. Um, So I think... Like, there's huge potential in dark matter, and we haven't quite got it right yet, but, you know, we're always evolving ourselves. Is that, you know, obviously we've got the city's mission, and then we've got, like, you know, the work that Indy's doing or the work that perhaps our radical civics mission is doing, which, you know, you've um, I think you've read some of their stuff. Mm. And we've got the chance, so we all met up um, in January, and, and um, like, we have actually, I don't know if this is interesting, but we've started to formalise how we intersect in our different like labs and missions so that we're kind of constantly asking those questions to ourselves. So the city team will come in and like, you know, present or talk about maybe the orchestration that they're doing and then like a lab like mine. So I look after the next economics lab. I can talk about that. Um, and I'll be thinking, oh, OK, so how are the things that I'm working on in that lab intersecting with what the city's team have just told me? Um, and then you know, building on top of that, we might have studios, which are like more special interest um, kind of 
groups within Dark Matter Labs, and then they kind of intersect with both our missions and our labs, and they'll be like something like Civ Tech or Metrics. Right. Um, and so I think this kind of it's really important actually that I say this. It's I think what we're trying to do is this compound learning in our own organization, which then hopefully can ripple out. So I think you know what the city's team are doing actually is um, hugely important for us because we are getting that live feedback. So you know right at the beginning of this podcast, I was talking about this you know grand aspiration of life economic life ennobling economics, let's call it LEE in future. Um, and I was talking about these big questions that we're asking, you know, and then so like, what does this desirable future economy look like? But then I was talking about how important it is to go out and test it. Right. And so and they're doing that. Like if we didn't have the Net Zero Cities team, I wouldn't have access to really test some of the stuff that I might be doing off on my, you know, slightly wild Horizon 3 bioregional distributed bank. So I think, you know, this push-pull tension is, um, is, is really interesting and really important. It's really vital. I, I would like to suggest that we, we set up uh, a fictional writing team within Dark Matter because I think a lot of these things, if we can get the stories out into the world, and I, I, would, I could just imagine another hub where you guys feed in and we, there would need to be multiples of us, in real time, turn these things into living stories that go out into the world because then, yeah. then people are not coming up against every time they switch on the television it's business as usual yeah and yet their their world they're trying to build something that's new i would love to do that can we can we enlist you please <laughs> yeah. yes please and please and georgia if you're listening to this you are totally invited onto the podcast i want to talk about Good. the the net zero cities in in huge detail but i also <laughs> want to talk about the bioregional bank because that sounds like this is Changing the nature of money. Yeah, that's that's the hope. And we have to change the nature of money and how we relate to it if we're going to get forwards. So in the same way, we have to change the nature of our political system. And the two are so closely entwined. So please, Emily, tell us about the Bioregional Bank. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> well, you know, I might have to come back to tell you about it because it's still very early stages, but I'll tell you the intention. And honestly, it's probably the thing I'm most excited about at the minute. The most daunted, but also the most excited. So... Um, yeah, it was interesting that you started off by saying we should put stories out because that's exactly what we've done. So um, I can give you a link to it, but we've posted recently a series of blogs and essentially they are, it's a um, future proposed speculative, speculative scenario of what um, a bioregional bank could look like in the future. So yeah, so in this blog series, we started off with the problems of money. Um, so let's just like as you know, you know, but one particular thing that I feel very strongly about is that, you know, it has this very dangerous um, intrinsic quality that it can self-perpetuate itself, um, you know, endlessly, but um, the physical things that it can buy have diminishing utility the more you get of them. And it's like, riddle me this, right? So like part of the um, intention of these distributed bioregional banks is to try and um, set up like responsible fungification so like how you can for example well let's say like a whale's life does not equate to a barrel of oil and yet we have this um right. kind of layer of, of money that lets us do that it's this abstract layer that um allows this to happen so one of the aspirations for this um experiment i suppose it is at the moment is like how could we stop that happening right and I'll try and say what it is we're proposing and then maybe you can push back at me because I, I can already see your face and I understand. No, 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 I'm enthralled. It's quite um, 
tech crypto potentially enabled but like and I I understand so let's let's talk about it no no that this too is good I'm trying to think how we make this clear for the people listening but go ahead and then I will summarize what I think you said and you can tell me if I'm wrong okay so what we want to do is within a bioregion what we want to start doing is really visualizing all the different value flows So like, for example, if we're thinking about a river, we can think about all of the different things that are coming from the river. So yes, it might be fish health, but it also might be the joy of of teaching someone how to swim or like, you know, um, caring for the river by cleaning up rubbish or all, all of these different things. And then what we're trying to do is think about how we can, first of all, visualize and, and measure these different flows, and then how we could perhaps put on top of that a token that is not monetized. So we're, we're talking about, we're calling it multivalent currencies. So we would have all these different tokens. So one might represent, let's say, soil integrity, or one might represent air quality, or another one might be actually social resilience. And all of these things would be linked to um, potentially like tech sensors coming in. But again, a bit like with the cornerstones, it would also be people expressing their views. Um, and then So we would have all of these different closed loop systems, right? So it's not, oh, you use this token and then you use it to buy this other token. And what we want to do, and I'll step you through how we think we can start this off, right? This is just like the vision. Mm. Um, On top of that, you would have a governance system, which probably will, again, involve technology. And I think that we want to look at um, kind of Bayesian statistical forecasting so that you can continually feed feedback into this model and then it will start to look at how that might play out. So for example, you might get feedback from the um, the health of a forest and soil integrity, and then you would be able to predict what the carrying capacity might be of that lumber over, over a certain number of years. And then the bank might think, oh, well, in that case, I won't issue any more um, debt or however in this future um, we are using money, but I won't issue any more Um, for those activities because it will exceed the carrying capacity of my base region, right? So we're trying to like stack these things on top of each other. But so that's like the aspiration. I'll I'll add one more bit to it and then I'll talk about what we're going to do practically because I have a feeling that people listening will be like, you're what? Um, Which, you know, and it's quite difficult to explain. I have like, we have sketched it out if anyone wants to have a look. But then you know, these regions should then be able to um, exchange with each other because I don't think much as I'm all for local trade and people looking after their own. Yeah, we do still need to. The way that we've connected all of our supply chains and everything, we do actually need to be able to exchange, I think, if we're going to have a, a peaceful planet. If, if we still want to drink coffee, we have to be able to trade with the people who grow coffee. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, you know, how can we kind of do that with contextually respectful exchange rates? So some kind of reserve currency that isn't backed by military force. Okay, so this is the grand aspiration, um, but I haven't completely lost my um, sense of (laughs) the fact that... What what America will do when you try to undermine their fiat currency, yeah. Well, yeah, there is that. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure my husband was that pleased about that. He's like, when I first told him this story, um, he said, uh, oh, you're going to go up against the greenback. And I was like, well, no, that's not really the point. Um, (laughs) No, okay. Kind of is, though. (laughs) Right, but I do realise that it might sound a little bit far-fetched, although I actually am not sure that it is, because I think we probably already have the technology to do these kind of things it's just how and when we put them together um 
But I think from a more practical point of view, um, if it's interesting, I can tell you like some sites that we're going to start this work and, and what it is we might actually do, because obviously... Yeah, yeah, I want to know. I, we might have lost half the listeners, but I am completely enthralled. So keep going. It's my podcast. <laughs> OK, I'm sorry if it went a bit a bit um, far out. But so there's two sites. It's OK, we can, we can bring yeah, it back. Yeah, so two sites where we're... And, it, and it's supposed to be aspirational. So let me just say that. Like, we realise that. This is about feeling right into the edges and then seeing what we can try and build. So it's OK that it sounds a little bit, like, out there. So we have a, a partnership with a site in Scotland um, and it's the Findhorn Watershed Initiative. And we're just starting this. So um, and what we want to do is that they are very committed to um, obviously restoring the um, biodiversity and everything of their watershed. But they're also um, wanting to ensure that there's a just transition so that the way that this happens really benefits and flows back to that community. So as part of that, they're creating a river charter, right? And so this is where we've come in and said, oh, can we try some of the things that we want to build in this context that will also help you do that? So like the first thing that we're going to do is create a relationships register, right? So like it's a bit of a play on the Scottish land registry system. But we want to do is show all the relationships going on, right? So we might start off with like spatial data, but then put on top of that how um, community is interacting with the river or like what the industries are doing and all of these different things. So we'll use that to create like a base map of all the different values that I was talking about um, in this bioregion. So this is obviously a smaller area. We've got to start somewhere. And then on top of that, we can really start to gather this data. And then on top of that, we'll try and create a couple, probably just like one or two of these like token currencies, but it will probably be more of a cultural demonstrator. So we'll, we'll, we're aiming to do it so that people can start to like think about how their relationship to the river is evolving. And they might not use this, let's call it a river coin. Um, they might not use it to pay for anything. They might not even use it to exchange. It could just be like um, a sign of, you know, a peer respect or, or, you know, at the start. So I don't think it needs to get that complicated that quickly. Some of it is just about people starting to feel into this. But then what we also want to do there is use this value mapping and then quantification to help them create business cases like so we can then a bit like what I was talking about in that city we can then put numbers on top of some of these value flows so that when they do get some investor coming in which has happened quite a lot and good for them they've kind of pushed back and said well we're not sure we want it because we're not sure that we know how to protect ourselves right yeah so what we're hoping to do having gathered all this data and you know use these tokens as as ways to visualize it is to then put these numbers in place so that they have this model that they can then use and just like pick and choose from. Wow. So all I wanted to say is that these are kind of practical pockets, I would say, of, of things that we know that we, well, not that we know, we think that we would like to test as part of our aspiration for this bioregional bank. And But we're not sure how it will all fit together. We'll test it also in, in um, Sheffield. We have a project with the River Don, so we might try and test some bits there. And then what I really want to do is find a university, if anyone's listening. <laughs> um, I want to find a university that's really using this kind of Bayesian statistical forecasting that I don't know much about, but I've done a bit of research and it is starting to be used in ecological forecasting. So, for example, I want to like partner with the university and, and actually understand what it can do. And then I might bring that in. Wow. So I think there's lots of little 
components that when you break them out a bit, you're like, oh, yeah. And actually, we had an incredible um, response to these blogs. And we had a gentleman in Japan get in touch who said, I'm willing to prototype this for you um, in this Japanese like community. And so we're going to speak to him on Friday. And it's like, well, great. You know, we'll we'll give you all the information that we've got. And how interesting, because I have no idea about that context um, or the reactions. So this is kind of the goal. So we've put the blogs out as a, like, we're thinking, working out loud. um, And please let us know. And actually, people have offered all sorts of, like, support. People have sent me unpublished work. Um, You know, people have offered to connect us to, like, the geospatial community. So I think how it evolves is going to be really exciting. Um, But I am definitely at the edge. Utterly (laughs) unpredictable. Utterly unpredictable. Yeah. Okay, let me reflect back to you what I think I've heard, and then and then I'll start mining my stack of questions. So we exist in a system at the moment where I have recently heard money described as commodified pain or yeah. commodified grief, yeah. which it's extractive, and and a dead whale is worth more than a live whale, or a forest cut down is worth more than a forest alive, because mm. there is no way, because our entire system is based on our the schism between humanity and the web of life, and we have ceased to value anything other than money. Except we haven't, but we tell ourselves the story that money is the only value. In order to shift that, you're creating bioregional banks, and a bioregion is often predicated on the watershed of a river because that's a measurable thing, and it's also the way that life flows mm-hmm. within the web of life within a region. I, I am watching now the replays of Joe Brewer's um, big seven-generation conference in Toronto, which was amazing, talking all about bioregions. Uh, if people are interested, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. I should have read your blogs. These sound fascinating. Oh, <laughs> so a bioregional bank will be linked to a specific biological region, and you're going to create tokens, which I guess are cryptocurrency tokens? I imagine so. Okay, and they are not, at the moment, linked to a fiat currency, so it's not that you get a river coin and it's worth a pound. You just get a river coin. Yeah. So a bit like the whole coins were. We're going to be talking about that in a future podcast. So we've got a cryptocurrency, which creates a unit of value, which we're going to call a river coin. And people could choose to turn those into a form of currency. I'll give you three river coins if you come and babysit for me for an hour. It would be a perfectly valid thing for people to say. In the same way, you could say, I'll give you three biscuits if you come and babysit for me for an hour. It's it's outside the existing economy. And, and it'll be really interesting to see how it works. In the longer run, the bank will have the capacity to evaluate how it allocates its currency, which if we get this right, notice we're now in first person plural because I think this is exceedingly exciting and I want to do it. We would end up with a a worldwide reserve currency, not predicated on violence, not predicated on extraction and commodification of pain and grief, but actually created and predicated on life and the thriving of life. And decisions would be made at a local level as to whether a particular project which required funding was to the greater benefit of the bioregion. And you'll be using the the highly complex but increasingly interesting to me concepts that you've got in the Cornerstone yeah. project to evaluate how we can tell whether it is of value to the system. One of the things that I've watched with Joe Brewer is he spends a lot of time just going out and talking to the rivers. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering within this, at the moment we have lots and lots of feedback loops of people. How are people feeling? 
you know, can you hit the thing in your local supermarket saying, did you have a good night's sleep last night or not? Yeah. How do we evaluate what the river feels, separate to what the people feel? Because in the end, that has to be part of the metric, is the river is thriving in itself. And you said we had things like soil resilience, and I'm guessing we have fish stocks, and whether the local water company has recently dumped entire amounts of sewage into it or not would, would be quite intrinsic. Yeah. And we still have to convince the money men who think it's perfectly okay to flood sewage into the rivers because otherwise they would be spending money doing something else that they don't want to spend, that that there is value to them. Or we just shut off their funding. Yeah, that's also an option and one that I would be quite happy with, but that's a governance issue. In In your wildest dreams, if we take this and we have a global reserve currency, how does it work? How do you see this working at the moment? And I completely get we're right on the edges of things. If I was living in a bioregion that only had funding from a bioregional bank, there was no other source of value exchange store and account. How does it work? Okay, so I, I guess your first question was like, you know, we talk about like asking humans what how they feel or and how can the river like communicate that for itself. So how does the river become self-sovereign? I guess is the question. So the radical civics team, so that's like Fang and Calvin, are actually working on that in Sheffield. Um, so they are looking at how the River Don in Sheffield becomes self-sovereign. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and I know, and it's really amazing, and it's worth looking at some of this. Um, and they are very much grounded in reality. So they are starting with things like how can we have like human um, guardians, let's say, for the river to start with who can communicate for the river because we don't yet know how to do it. So they're starting to do things like, you know, um, having interviews with people and they would ask them questions such as, you know, if you were a fish, would you like to live in this river? And, you know, why do you say that? Or if you were a bee, would you be interested to hang out around this river and why? You need to talk to Ruth Catlow down in London at Finsbury Park. She does the LARPing, the live action role play, where you spend a day, I think sometimes even a weekend, being a tree or a blade of grass or a stag beetle. And by the end of it, when you're asked what you think and how you feel, it's as authentic as I think we're going to get as an expression of what it is to be that so that we could bring that into the figuring, maybe? Exactly. So there's definitely, there's that side of it. And then you can combine it because you can have sensors about like the quality of the river, can't you? And, and, you know, you can actually look at what the fish health is and all of these different things. And then the human kind of guardians or stewards can feed that back up to the river token to start with, right? But then over time, as the technologies improve, the river can start to like mint its own money. And at that point, it's the river that's deciding what the value is. But then something that I find really important is that it can't just all be tech. So I think when I was saying on top of this, there's a kind of governance layer that I haven't figured out yet. Um, but within that, so whether it's this Bayesian forecasting or whatever, we definitely need to have human, I think anyway, interaction again, at least like, mm. so for example, perhaps one community might upregulate river health because they feel that it's really important. So they would feed that back into this model. This is how I'm imagining it. So it won't always get it right. Upregulate means uh, value it more highly than other things? Yeah. So so if you imagine all these different closed loop systems are feeding into the, like, let's say it's a, call it the regen coin. So like, let's say the top coin is the regenerative potential of that bioregion. And that is calculated or it's a bad word, but, you know, it's a it's a factor of all of these, the health of all of the things coming up to it. But 
how those are then combined, um, you know, might be weighted differently depending on, you know, because in some bioregions, um, like the the river might actually be more important to the integrity of the bioregion than, for example, like maybe trust in that community is already really high, so we don't need to upregulate right. it. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we do still have this kind of um, felt sense coming back in and then it doesn't become like a technology focused um enterprise so you just have iterative cycles that keep coming back to how do we feel about this exactly yeah 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 and that's why i want to work with the universities on this because that is what bayesian forecasting does so it constantly updates itself um depending on the inputs coming in yeah and then presumably over time we need to stop soon but this is just so interesting because quite a lot yeah, I sit in a lot of circles and you go around and you ask people how they feel. And for a lot of people, that's a very challenging question. They have no idea how they feel and they don't really want to, to explore it because how they feel is not good. Mm. You know, in the end, they've come to sit in the circle and we can find ways of helping them to feel into how they feel that are not going to tip yeah. them into crisis. Yeah, yeah. But I'm imagining that w- once this is functioning, the kind of data points that you're getting are from people who are increasingly comfortable with assessing how they're feeling. And it matters more instead of what they're thinking. Because a lot of people, you ask them what they feel and they go, well, I think that I'm a bit tired. And you go, yeah, I didn't ask you what you thought. How do you feel? And I I wouldn't be as brutal as that usually. But after a while, you get people who are going to be able to sit there and go, I wait this morning and I I feel that. So I'm I'm remembering, actually, I had a particular morning in, in the cottage I used to live in and I was sitting with my altar and I was doing my morning meditation and I had a sudden feeling of absolute trauma from up the hill and I went running up the hill and the rabbits had stripped the lower six inches of all the trees in the apple orchard and I was extremely unhappy but I was in time to go out and get some bitumen and put it yeah. on and and repair the apples and all but one of them survived and I'm not suggesting that I am in any way uniquely connected but I had put a lot of time and effort into being connected to that land and so given the time and the space and the privilege to do that, you get people who are able to say, you ask them, how do they feel? And they're going to say, I feel that bend in the river has someone's just dumped something in it and this isn't good and we can go and clear it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the level of feedback that you get changes in its depth and content, I would imagine, quite quickly. And just studying that would be the PhD that I would like to do, please. Thank you. <laughs> when you get the academic systems going. Right. But I think even... I love that you just said that because, you know, I've sat here in my slightly more panicked moments thinking, what on earth am I doing? You know, is this just pointless, whatever. But I think even if the whole thing... No, don't say that. It won't be. ...is a, a bit of a flop, the fact that people... No, right. No, no, no. But it, no, it won't be. I don't think it will be. But even if it was, in the process of doing this, in the process of, like, actually mapping out these values and interviewing people about the rivers and all of these things that we're going to do in these places, if we, by doing that... of perhaps connected when they're making a transaction it starts to connect them to feeling what's beneath it then that's already a win right so I suppose I just don't want people to come away from this conversation listening to it thinking yeah you know that's all a little bit tech focused and because it's not that's that's not what this is about it's using technology for its best ends it's using it to do the things that it can do to let us do the things that we can do which is the feeling and the connecting exactly and also i think you know this the problem of money and just these you know the fact that we are so disconnected from what our transactions are doing and how it is eroding everything that matters i think that these kind of interventions can really start to um kind of break that so 
um, that's actually quite a big part of the aspiration. Wow. Gosh. Well, I never thought we'd get to here. And and that was when I started with the fact that <laughs> what you guys had written in those two documents was amongst the most exciting things I had ever read. I could literally talk to you all day. I'm sure you have other things that you need to be doing. I would like to invite you back again in about six months to see how we're getting on, if you can if you can bear it. And in the meantime, you and I need to be designing the fiction writers feed into this. Um, because this needs, can you imagine if every yeah. time you switched on and watched a soap, the soap was being set in a building by region instead of, you know, a dysfunctional business as usual, whatever. Yeah. It would change the nature of our reality overnight. And if we could get people understanding this and beginning to bring it out as the background music to the world that we live in, we begin to build new stories. So this is, Emily, it's just so exciting. Have you got anything else? I, I, we do need to draw to a close because we, we've gone way over time. But is there anything <laughs> that you wanted to say? People, I'll put the blogs, anything that you want to send me, we'll put it in the show notes. And is there anything that people can do besides reading those? And if they have ideas, they get in touch with you. Anything else? Yeah, so I think if people are, are willing to read the blogs, um, then we would just be really grateful for any insights and questions. And actually, pushbacks and critiques is really important as well, because we're definitely at the edge of our understanding as we embark on this. So um, we're really interested to hear from people. So really, that's my only ask. Yay. Well, I hope if people have got through what's going to be about an hour and a quarter of podcasts, they definitely have time to go and read <laughs> the blogs. If Guys, if you can't read them, just tell me and I will record them and you can listen to them as a podcast because they're really, really important. And this is the edge of interbecoming. This is, you guys are working right at the edge of where things are actually happening. And if we're going to have change, it has to move into the real world. So thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Manda. Well, there we go. That's it for another week. Such huge thanks to Emily for the depth and the breadth of her thinking and for the rest of the Dark Matter Labs teams for taking it out into the world and making it happen. We will definitely have a podcast with the Zero Cities team and anybody else who wants to come and tell us about what the teams at DML are doing. In a world where our media so often tells us about the things that are going wrong, we don't get to hear about the people who are working really hard, right at the edge of reality, making things happen, under the radar, without the eyes of predatory capitalism being turned their way, which is probably just as well. But we need to know this. And Dark Matter Labs is there, having the ideas, holding them up to the light, offering them in open source so that we can all read them. And we can all offer opinions, additions, criticisms, anything that will help it to move forward that comes with good heart. So please do read the papers, read them in good faith. And if there's any way that you can help, get in touch. Let's make things happen. We'll come back and talk to Emily, I hope, in about six months' time, sometime in the autumn, probably September time, just to find out how things are going, because this edge of the world is moving really fast. And I think part of what keeps me, and I hope you, moving forward is the understanding that these things are actually happening and that there are tools that will let us bring them into our own communities of place, of purpose, or of passion. So if there are ways of integrating these ideas in your community, then please get out there and do them. This is the year of turning points. 
There is no business as usual anymore. What matters is how fast, how deeply, how interconnectedly we can create the change in the world around us. So go for it. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week with another conversation. Huge thanks to Kara C for the music at the Head and Foot, to Alan Lulls of Airtight Studios for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and to Faith Tillery for the website, for keeping the tech moving, and for all of the conversations that keep us moving forward. And as ever, enormous thanks to you for listening, for engaging, for having the ideas, and for bringing them into being in your own world. I get so many emails from people who are making things happen, and it absolutely makes my heart sing and gives me hope that we will actually create a world where future generations will look back at us and think we may have made a lot of mistakes, but we did actually get it half right, enough half right, in the end. So if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of making that future happen, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.